We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Revelation chapter 20. And if you're following in the Church Bibles, um, it's on page 1040. Revelation 20, starting at verse 1, it says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who would not worship the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be um, looking at that in the next few minutes. There is an outline of where we're going in your um, service sheet, so do make a use of that um, as is helpful. And at the end, there will be an opportunity for any questions um, or comments. So I mentioned that so you can be thinking as we go through. 
But before we go any further now, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign over us. And we pray, therefore, as your redeemed people, that we would vindicate uh, who you are in our response to your word. Help us to listen, to trust and obey. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was that they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And as we approach in the book of Revelation the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, could the same thing happen all over again? Could the people of God sin and risk being banished once more from God's presence. Central to Adam and Eve's sin was a deception. It was a deception instigated by the serpent who was in the garden with them. That is to say that the serpent's deception led to Adam and Eve's fall. Could the people of God be deceived once more? Now these kind of questions raise issues about the security of our salvation. How secure will we be in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, it's in Revelation chapter 20 that we learn of the defeat of Satan. The chapter will end with him being thrown into the lake of fire and sulphur, together with all those whose name is not found written in the book of life. Now, this chapter, chapter 20, has certain parallels with what we read in Revelation chapter 12. Both concern the binding of Satan, the victory of the saints, and Satan's end. In Revelation 12, we have, and if you want to follow, uh, in the text, it's on page uh, 1034 of the Church Bibles. These three elements. So, Revelation 12, verses 8 and 9. Satan being thrown down from heaven in defeat. Verse 11, we have the saints conquering over him. And in verse 12, we're told that his time is now short. And all of these events are, of course, the consequence of the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, those three elements find parallel in our text in Revelation chapter 20. So, in chapter 20, verse 3... 
Satan being thrown into the pit. Well, that finds parallel with Satan being thrown to earth in Revelation 12. In 20 verse 4, the martyrs coming to life and reigning with Christ. Well, that finds parallel with the saints conquering over him in Revelation 12. And in 2010, Satan's final defeat. Well, that finds parallel with the fact that his time is now short in Revelation chapter 12. Now, the parallels between chapters 12 and 20, though the chapters are not identical at every point, do suggest that they depict the same events and mutually interpret one another. Okay, so with that in mind, let's take a closer look at the text of Revelation chapter 20. In verses 1 to 4, Satan is bound and confined to a pit. And if the fall of Satan in chapter 20 is generally equivalent to his fall in chapter 12, then this confinement in the pit represents the defeat of Satan in principle. And whilst there's no explicit mention of Christ's exaltation and the angelic battle against Satan here, the heavenly scene of Revelation 20 verse 1 presupposes these events. Well, the consequence of Satan being confined to a pit is that Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations. Verse 3. Now I take it that this doesn't mean that his work of deception is no longer active. Rather, the idea of him being bound is that his ability to deceive is limited, but nevertheless still active. And this will tie in with what we see later in verses 7 to 10. For when Satan is released, well, he then is able to deceive the nations insofar as he raises them up in a final assault against God's people. In other words, the restraint of Satan in verses 1 to 3 is put in terms of being restrained in his ability to deceive the nations to oppose the people of God in this final way. That is to say, Satan's ability to deceive the nations and oppose God's people is limited for this period of time. Now at this point, the focus shifts from what is happening on earth to what is happening in heaven. And this finds a parallel in Revelation 12, where we see that the throwing down of Satan to earth 
means the vindication of the saints in heaven. And so here we find that the defeat of Satan has implications for the saints, for they share in his defeat, they share in his defeat and the victory of Christ. And it's put here in terms that we saw back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and the letters, uh, the letter to the seven churches. And if you remember, you know, each of the letters to the churches ended with that, to the one who conquers, I will, and then a promise is given. So, to the church in Thyatira, it said, chapter 2, verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. To the one who conquers will be given authority over the nations to rule over them. And then to the church in Laodicea, it said, chapter 3, verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So what is pictured then in Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, are the martyrs who have now conquered and who now reign with Christ, as promised. The defeat of Satan in principle means the reign of the saints in principle. Now, I say in principle because the whole thing has not yet been consummated. It's not yet the end. But the decisive events that bring about that end have already happened. And so it's only a matter of time before the end comes. In other words, the focus shifts from what has taken place in the pit, verses 1 to 3, to what happened in heaven as a result of the binding of Satan. The binding of the serpent secures the saints to reign with Christ. In verse 7, Satan is released from the confinement of the pit. Whereas before he was restrained from deceiving the nations, now that he's released, well, what does he do? Let's pick it up from verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
On his release, Satan deceives the nations in one final assault against God and his people. Gog and Magog are words that can sound a bit strange to our ears, and we might wonder what they refer to. But one of the things that we've been um, seeing um, about the genre that is apocalyptic is that it often reuses language and symbolism found in the Old Testament. And as we become more familiar with the Old Testament, we can increasingly expect to recognise the language and symbolism that's reused. Well, Gog and Magog uh, are introduced to the, the Bible reader back in Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. And it refers to the people at the extremities of the known world at that time. And it's reused here in Revelation 20 to emphasize that after the release of Satan, after the thousand years, Satan rouses up the nations from the four corners of the earth for one last battle. It's interesting that the book of Revelation has prepared first-generation Christians for the first-generation assaults. It's done that in categories and terms that has prepared later-generation Christians for future assaults. But it's here that we witness the final assault. And it's a bit of an anticlimax. There's no description of the battle. We're simply told that fire came down and devoured them. Now, it's not the first anticlimactic battle in Revelation. We saw it back in Revelation 16. There, the, there Babylon and the nations assembled for battle and we simply read that there was a great earthquake in chapter 16 verse 19 the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell in Revelation 19 there was no description of any battle the beast and the false prophet were simply thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur Each time there is this gathering for battle, but then the battle is over before it's, it has begun. But it's not a surprise when you know who God is. He is the uncreated creator. He has no rival. It's a silly thing for creatures to rise up and attempt to assault him. The creature is no match for the creator. And so we read, uh, end of chapter 20, verse 9, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Well, we began by asking whether there could be a repeat, whether there could ever be a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. 
Could Satan once more deceive the saints? There will be no serpent in the new creation. Evil was not intrinsic to the first creation. So neither is it intrinsic to the new creation. At the consummation of the kingdom of God, God's purpose for Satan is fulfilled and he is ultimately defeated. That said, the parallel with Adam in Eden isn't actually the saints in heaven. For there is a structure to humanity. In particular, humanity has a head. In which case, the question is not in the first instance, can the saints be deceived? But can the second Adam be deceived? And that question has already been answered. Is Christ's victory over Satan that is shared by the saints? With the ultimate defeat of Satan comes the security of God's people. Let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the heavenly perspective that the book of Revelation gives us regarding your purposes for Satan. And we thank you here in Revelation 20. We see how your purposes for him are fulfilled as he is ultimately uh, thrown um, into the lake of fire and sulfur. We thank you how that secures um, your creation purpose for a new heaven and new earth where we will dwell with you and you will dwell with us. You will be our God and we will be your people. And that we will, there will be no possibility that we could be deceived and misrepresent you because we will know you um, as you know us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, anybody want to ask a question or make a comment? Nathan.
Yeah, good, uh, good one. Let me just, um, gosh, make it more and more challenging to repeat these comments. <laughs> so just for the recording, so um, uh, I'll do it the other way around. You did it. So back in Revelation chapter six, we had uh, chapter six, verse um, nine. Let me just read, read, read nine and ten, and eleven. It says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been and then observation is that, that that then is 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 kind of answered or played out in Revelation 20 because you see there that those in, in verse 4, the souls who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, who are then uh, uh, come to life and reign with Christ for those thousand years. And then they witness their final vindication. So I think the commentator, if you if you follow the words, the commentator uh, calls it that that's referring to their inaugural exaltation, which awaits their consummated um, exaltation when the whole thing is sort of wrapped up. But yes, in terms of what's interesting, also there, how long, O Lord? And back in Revelation six, uh, God says, "Not yet." And in many ways, you see that delay for this period of a thousand years where Satan is restrained in order to bring about God's purposes. Um, but that doesn't thwart God's purposes. Actually, Satan's restraint means that God's um, salvific purposes are assured and therefore he saves those whom he will save and he will keep them and exalt them. And then ultimately, that final assault is the, is the final answer, which then leads on to next week with the new heaven, new earth, because then they are vindicated in, in the fullest sense. Cool. Anybody else? Yes, Matt. Yes, thank you. So um, in verse 13, it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
And bearing in mind that we know that we're saved not by works, but by grace, as he put it, how, we, how does that we make sense of what that judgment looks like? Is that so? Um, so I think what's going on here is this is the, um, and we will think a bit more about this on the um, final reflection a bit later, but I can say a few things now. This is the point where. Um, we have the final judgment and the idea that there is this general resurrection where everyone is everyone is is raised for this judgment so that's the idea about the sea giving up the dead death and Hades giving up the dead you know if you die it's interesting I think some people get quite angry about when people die because they escape justice you know they never they never as in the human sort of courts. But here the picture is there's this general resurrection of all for final judgment. And the stress in the fact is according by what they had done is always the stress in the Bible that God's punishment is about retribution. And there's all kinds of penal theories, but the the um, the penal theory which um, underpins all the rest is retrib uh, retribution in terms of just deserts for your crime. So the fact there is a record of what people have done, that is the basis on which the judgment has been made. But do you notice that as well as there's this book which um, depicts um, a record of what has been done, there is another book in verse 12, which is the book of life. And so... Um, If your name is in the book of life, then you you don't face a judgment along those with everybody else whose name is not in the book of life. So it's like there's two books: one a, a book about um, what people have done and judged on that basis, but there is those uh, whose names are in the book of life. And if your name is in that book, then you. Um, you're not judged along with everybody else. And I take it then the book of life is related to, well, in the language of Revelation, bearing the mark of the Lamb. Um, um, being faithful, persevering to the end, conquering, not compromising. It's or They're the marks of those whom are gods, and therefore, because of his blood, well, it takes you all the way back, doesn't it, to um, Revelation 1. Um, uh, it's a lovely verse in 1 verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I think that's some initial comments. Is that, is that okay? Time for more? Oh, okay, we've got two. We've gone in. Susie and then Simon. Yeah.
Okay, yeah, yeah. You know there's a lot going on. It's not it's not the easiest of um easiest thing for us to understand. Okay, so for the recording, um um how are we to understand the thousand years? Is it symbolic? And this whole idea of if they only reign with Christ for a thousand years, are we not to understand that reigning is lasting forever, whereas this seems to come to an end? Yeah, well, it's funny because, I mean, in a world, in a book full of symbolism, it would be peculiar at this point if we thought a thousand years was a thousand years. Um, um, and so, I mean, that, that's just your sort of starting point. Um, and then it's interesting that if if we're right to go with the parallel between Revelation 20 and Revelation 12, then the, the thousand years is the period between Satan's defeat in principle, basically his, um, in the words of Revelation 12, his been thrown to the earth, or in the words of um, Revelation 20, been bound in a pit. So the thousand years is, is is the time between his defeat in principle, which relates to the ascension of Christ, and then his final defeat at the end. So it's that period of it's that period of history, which is some symbolic of a thousand years. Um, so that are you happy with that part? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other views on this, but um, if I mean, one thing I wanted to do, okay, but before we get to that second question, one thing I wanted to do with you guys today is rather than come with, oh, there's all these different ways of understanding this, and uh, let me argue for one and impose um, impose a structure on the text. I thought one of the nice things that we were able to do in Revelation is, because we've read all the way through, it's a slightly more inductive reading. And so I'd encourage us all just to go away and at least think about the parallel with Revelation 12 and see if you think it fits. If it doesn't, you know, we can continue to talk about it. But I thought it was very interesting to actually kind of come at it with slightly fresh eyes rather than, you know, um, come with a, a structure that we're going to... Um, Come with and therefore make the text make the text fit. Now, interesting, you mentioned about the time being limited, and is the question is: is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think in here it's a good thing because um, the limit. Um, if there was no limit, then we'd just be in this situation where. Satan is defeated in principle. He's bound in a pit, but he's still he's still active, but not limited. And actually, the fact that this thousand years comes to an end, that's when he's released and then finally destroyed. So the thousand years is actually uh, God's. Well, in the words of uh, to Peter, God's patience um, to bring about His plan of judgment and redemption, which involves 
this binding of Satan in a pit. And until those thousand years are finished, they're then um, he, he's then released to funnel destruction. Now the reigning, I don't think we need to be worried about the fact that they reigned for a thousand years because their reign didn't come for an end after the thousand years. It's just that, um, again, using um, big words, but this helps you do complex ideas, their reign was an inaugural reign, which then turns into a consummated reign. Well, I can put it in maybe a slightly more straightforward way. It's like a now and not yet to the reign. The reign's already begun because Satan's already been defeated, but it's a kind of a reign in principle. It's not yet a reign that's, you know, it's not the final state of affairs, which happens after the thousand years. So in that sense, the reign in the sense will be forever um, in the new heaven and new earth. But the point is, is that it's already begun which is, encourages us because, again, well, it goes back to the whole question about you know, who talks about Jesus' ascension. But the reason why we want to talk about his ascension is that if we talk about his death and resurrection, the question is, where's Jesus now? What's he doing? You know, are we just trying to make the most of what we've got? No, no, he died, rose. He's ascended. He's already victorious. We already share in that victory. Um, and therefore, we're to persevere and and continue to uh, be a faithful witness to him as through us he, he brings about his, his, his plans of salvation on, on the earth as we present the gospel. Is that okay? Yeah. Go on, Simon. It's an easy one. Yes. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yes. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> That's how to ask a question and answer it. Um, great. Um, in which case, <laughs> we're going to leave it there. Um, right, we're going to sing uh, a song, Out to See the Dawn.